put down the crack pipe, kids. It's time for Dot Dot Rocks. <laughs> the Internet Audio Talk Show for Dot Net developers. I'm your host, New London, Connecticut. <coughs> Visceral Fats. <laughs> and my host in, uh, where the hell are you, Montgomery, Alabama? I'm in Montgomery, man. This is saturated fat. Saturated fat. What's going on? We're all just getting over colds here, and I'm sort of in the throes of one. Uh, how you doing, Mark? Hey, man, I'm doing great. Good to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, it's good to hear from you. Yeah, I, I picked up this cold somewhere. It's, the doctor said it was something called SARS, but it's nothing to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Been yeah. eating Chinese food lately, huh? I guess, yeah. And... uh uh, well, you know, it, it should it should blow over pretty soon, but you just have to put up with my my blues singer sound. And now I'm joining the group here. We're gonna have uh, our guest Michael come on as polyunsaturated fats. So it'll be a uh, a whole a whole band of blues singers before the night is out. Hey, Mark, uh, you notice anything going on in in .NET land this week? Well. uh I know the uh, the new version of uh, .NET's been released, so you can, uh, of course, download that from MSDN Library. Yeah, absolutely. If you're an MSDN subscriber, that is. And everybody should be that's a developer, right? And one other thing we were talking about right before we started recording was that there's a coupon in the box for uh, an upgrade from Enterprise Edition for only, what, 27 bucks? Yeah, I think bucks? that's right. I, uh, I've got a coupon in my Enterprise Architect Edition that lets you upgrade for $27. That's incredible. What a deal. Yeah, such a deal indeed. Well, I went looking on the website, um, uh, microsoft.com slash press pass, and I'll, I'll add a link to this on the website. I like to go here to find out, you know, what, what the rest of the world is, is getting in terms of news from Microsoft about .NET and things and their products. And there's some good stuff up here. Uh, they talk about their new brand, Windows Server System, you know, and for developers, you know, hey, we have a love-hate relationship with our marketing department, but it's good to know what they're telling the world uh, this stuff is. So the the Windows Server System, I suppose, is the new server brand, and uh, there's some great stuff here that was done in just the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's another one that's a Q&A session on secure computing which is sort of a uh, interview with Mike Nash, who's the corporate vice president of Microsoft Security's Microsoft's security business unit. And uh, he's talking about some of the new innovations in security that they've come up with in the last year and uh, what it's like to be on the customer side of security issues and, and what are some of the big issues, what are, what are the, the things that they're doing. Um, as you know, security is a big deal for Microsoft and uh, they're trying to do a good job of getting getting stuff going um so there's some great great uh articles up here it's good to read even if you want to step back from your developer role for a little bit and uh, take a look and see what what's going on yeah security is probably going to be a pretty big practice in the consulting arena in the future uh don't you think i mean security is something that that developers kind of shy away from at times but oh absolutely you know, definitely uh, something that you're going to have to address and deal with with .NET. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so much security in the .NET framework that, you know, it can be quite easy to, you know, it's sort of like a big monster like NT security is. You, I don't know if you ever knew anybody who, when they just started trying to mess around with groups and stuff, 
and permissions completely lock themselves out of their own computer. You ever see that happen? Yeah, I've known a network administrator that did that once. Yeah, so uh, that's the kind of the same thing could happen if you're not careful because we have so much security, we could completely lock everything down so that we, you know, we're getting errors all the time. So it's a good thing to know. Right. You know, I just taught a class last week, and uh, this this popped up because one of the students had written a console app, and he decided to run it over the network. He got a security violation when that happened. Yeah. So uh, it was a great, what, what would you call it with kids almost, a teachable moment right. uh, to be able to uh, to go in and show them how to configure it to uh, to be trusted. Right. Now, what did we learn from this little exercise, kids? Well, um, you you uh, and we're we're gonna have a show here coming up on some stories. You've got lots of great stories in your back pocket that I can't wait to hear. But one of them about training. One of them was great that you uh, you went to teach a class and the second day nothing worked. Right. Right. In the class, like nobody could get into their machines. Nobody could write code. You were getting security errors all over the place. Tell me that story. Right, I think you're referring to uh, to a class that I taught up in Atlanta, and uh, there was a night class going on. So the next day when we came in, the uh, the guy that was teaching the night class had completely repaved the machines. And it was be- it was a class in security, right? It was a security class, <laughs> and he had done that because he had gotten himself into a situation where none of them could get back into the network. <laughs> And, you know, it got worse. He did it like two or three other times during the week. And the thing that really killed me was when you went to go ask the people who were in charge of the room, hey, what's happening here? Like, they didn't have any clue. No, they had no earthly idea what was going on. <laughs> so, and some people dropped out of the class or something? No, uh, they, they actually, a couple of them wanted their money back, which That's uh, what it is, was. is never a good thing when that happens. Yeah, not good. Another couple of things I'll mention is that we're uh, uh, the Sunny Day video that we talked about on objects is still in production and uh, it will be available soon. We're getting a newsletter, ramping up to get a new newsletter going on here, and we are the featured site. .NET Rocks is the featured site on got.net.com for the month of April, and I thought that was nice to mention. Thank you very much for that, got.net. Got.net.com is sort of a C-sharp centric, but it but it has some VB samples. But it's a nice portal for it's Microsoft's run portal uh, for .NET programmers, and uh, there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of great downloadable samples, incredible samples actually, and uh, a good community as well. Yeah, it's amazing how Got.net has grown. I remember when I I first found the site, uh, I was out at Microsoft doing some some work and uh, became aware of it. It was really pretty small back then, and now it's a huge site. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Mark, have you done any work with the uh, Microsoft application blocks or the blue bricks, as they're called? I looked at one of them. I think it's a data template to do a data access object. Uh-huh. But uh, that's that's about all I've looked into, the blue bricks. Yeah, I saw them demonstrated in uh, at the Hartford... Uh, .NET user group meeting last month, and uh, I particularly saw the database one that had caught my eye. So there's been a lot of buzz about these application blocks, which are uh, pre-written code that you can download from Microsoft to do some of the things that you do all the time. And it sort of shows a best practice 
and gives you some real code and it's commented. Uh, and so, you know, there's been a buzz about it and, uh, we asked our Microsoft contacts if we could find somebody to come on the show and explain it to us and uh, talk about it, talk about what's coming up. So our guest today is uh, Michael Stewart, a senior consultant in Microsoft Consulting Services who just happens to be working on the Bluebricks project. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Hey, Michael. Good to have you with us. Thank you. So you are in Redmond, I'm, I actually live in Houston. I work out of here most of the time, but for this Bluebricks project for the past six months and probably for the next two or so, um, I'll be working with the guys in Redmond directly. I go up there about every three weeks or so. Okay. So you've been working in, with Microsoft for about three years and you're a .NET specialist. That's right. Yeah. And, Although uh, saying a specialist in, at Microsoft is kind of a dangerous thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? They I try put... not to say I'm expert in anything. Because then they'll task you with things? or Because I'll guarantee that there's somebody who's about five times smarter than, than you in any given field. That's true. That's true. And that that's a way of life, right? One-upping each other at Microsoft about uh, stuff like that. It, it, it happens. <laughs> so you, are, you, you currently are working on three new Bluebricks projects, right? Right. So why don't you tell us about those? They're, they're amazingly exciting. I mean, I was glad that you talked about the data access brick because I think that if anybody's heard of Bluebricks, they've probably heard of the data access brick. Um, it's a data access was done, uh, I think it was probably the first, yeah, it was the first Bluebrick that was written. It was done about a year and a half ago and a lot of collaboration with the guys from Vertigo Software. Uh, if you all recall, do you remember the, the FM Stocks demonstration application? Oh, sure. Yeah, Such other stocks. Oh, killer. Now. I mean, yeah. sure. You know, I learned everything I needed to know about MTS from that from that application. Yeah. You know, and, and that was just a springboard. And then, of course, you know, Patterson's book and all that. We've actually had Scott on the show and talked quite a bit about uh, FM FM Stocks and the Pet Shop and all the stuff that they do for you. So. Uh, Cool, good. Okay, yeah. Yep. And we're we're also talking to them about using the UIP in the next version of, of Pet Shop. Great. You know, we got a lot, I wouldn't say a lot, we got a fair amount of criticism from the Java community that Pet Shop wasn't necessarily a reference architecture. Right. And they had a point. Um, we wrote one that was a very thin layer that didn't have a whole lot of ivory tower purity in it. And, you know, I'm I'm okay with that. Um, sure. I'm very pragmatic, but I can see uh, I can see what they were saying. So I'm I'm glad that we're focusing on a on a very pure OO orientation for the next one. Yeah, Vertigo puts out some great stuff. I've uh, I've enjoyed everything I've seen of theirs. Yeah, they're they're really impressive. Yeah, yeah one thing that impressed me when we talked to Scott, uh, you know, being the uh, the CEO or president of, uh, of Vertigo, he was incredibly technical. Yeah. And you, you just don't run into that much with uh, with companies, you know? Sure. I mean, the, the guy's got his hands in the middle all the time. So, Anyway, but uh, let's talk about the Blue Bricks. Yeah, let's let's back up and talk about the database Blue Brick, well, actually. So the, the database Blue Brick came out about a year and a half ago, and, uh, I mean, it was it was in beta right about the time, I think right. No, that's about right. Yeah, right about the time uh, Visual Studio was releasing. And the idea behind it was, 
you know, I love all the new stuff in ADO.net, but a lot of people became real used to the way a record set kind of wrapped up everything for you. And right. so right. a bunch of guys said, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we wrote a real thin, practical data access layer on top of ADO.net that hides some of the complexity from you and just works? Right. And that from that idea came came the Bluebricks. And the team that makes Bluebricks is called Patterns and Practices. Right. They're uh, n- not a huge group um, in the content and delivery group. And they, I guess they just got a got a crazy idea and cranked the thing out. Um, that that group does a whole lot more than just Bluebricks. They also are responsible for writing a lot of content about reference architectures. Uh, if you go to the site, and here's the URL, uh, msdn.microsoft.com slash practices, you'll see that there are a ton of white papers on there. And they're just those papers that you always wished you could have found on MSDN. Right. You know, the a roll-up. Here's how to do a secure web application in .NET. And yeah. it leaves nothing to the imagination. I mean, it is explicit. Great. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, so anytime you can uh, you can wrap a a design pattern up and uh, and make it easy for a developer to follow it, I I think that's a win win combination. Absolutely. Yeah, developers learn a lot by by looking at other code. Oh, for sure. And you know, we we all pay lip service to patterns, but unless we get used to using them and get them put in front of us, you know, sometimes it's easy to revert back to old bad habits. Right. Um, I love patterns. I mean, I've, I'm sort of compared to, well, certainly compared to some of the uh, the guys up in Redmond, I'm a, I'm a novice with patterns, but, you know, for the last year, I've just been saturated with them and uh, I love that concept. One of the blue bricks I'm working on, the user interface process could almost be called a pattern in its own right. Um, that's not really fair, though. It's more of a meta pattern. Are you all familiar with MVC? Uh, no. Model View Controller. It's a it's an old architecture, um, and it's one of the patterns that's discussed right there in the Gang of Four. You know, the Bible of patterns. Um, uh, I've never. I, I call it Gang of Four now. Yeah, that's what their names were. We ha- I can't I think even we remember have a... what the book is anymore. We have reference to it. Okay, good. Um, anyway, MVC, I, I think, am I right? Yeah, I think MVC is in there. Um, real commonly used in the small talk world. And there are a couple of very good Java implementations, a couple of very good .NET implementations. Yeah, so so talk. start with what the user interface process application block is. Okay, well, let me, uh, give me just a, a two sentences worth of background. Um, the PAG team, what they're doing is they're sort of they're sort of extending Visual Studio today with an eye towards coming out tomorrow. Right. So I want everybody to feel very comfortable that when they use these things, we're not leading you down a garden path or you're not going down a blind alley architecturally. Uh, they are supported by PSS, um, you know, the premier support services. So we train people in how to diagnose problems with these things. They're very well documented. And if customers have problems with them, they can call Premier. So they're quasi-products. Um, hmm. So don't be afraid to use them. You know, we're not going to lead you down the garden path. I've also spent 
hours and hours and hours talking to the PMs and, and various groups, including upcoming framework releases and, and, and upcoming windows, and said, is what we're doing consistent, if not semantically, at least philosophically, with what's coming? And and they had to give sign-off or we couldn't have gone forward. So anyway, the UIP yeah. is called User Interface Process, and it's got four goals. First of all, would you guys agree with me that navigation and workflow, specifically workflow, do not belong in your UI layer code? Yeah. Those are business services. Right. But right. we all do it. We chain together either win forms or we do response to our redirects and our web websites, and we have a great deal of linking between these pages, and it's fine if you've got a 10-page application. But I spent a, a couple of weeks uh, a while back at a company with a 500-page web app that did that. And it was impossible to maintain. It was so brittle that you couldn't change anything. Um, they were essentially rewriting it. Hmm. And that's a real problem. So you've got you've to have workflow, got to have discipline, got to pull that out of the UI. So give me an, exa- give me an example of that. Okay. Um, let's say that I need to go from... Uh, Okay, I, I fill in my credit card information, right? Okay. There are a couple of possible outcomes from that from that page, right? I could go to the take off loser, your card is denied, <laughs> right? Or I can go to <laughs> that's the, what happens to me every day. So right, and I, I I mentioned that first because you know that's my comfort zone. <laughs> okay. I know I'm doing good when my cards are full. Right. Yeah. So uh, you know, because I'm that means you're rich, right? Or stupid, one or the other. And they go together real good. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, and the other possible outcome is ka-ching, thank you very much, you know, I hope you get your stuff, maybe you won't. Right. So it's two possible outcomes. Um, in a traditional web app, I would do some sort of logic in the UI and the code behind page, right? Okay. Um, which... You know, it's a class all by itself, that, that code behind page, but uh, doing a, a decision in there and then doing a response dot redirect to either takeoff.aspx or kaching.aspx. Right. Um, it's fine if you've got a three-page application. Right. The 500-page application is a problem, so you've got to take that stuff out. And it's a problem because there could be, you may want to add more decision trees or more outcomes or yes yeah you may want to chain different things um right you know you you create brittleness when you do that because now you've got a dependency between all three of those things all of them know about each other in other words the decision to to redirect to the thank you goodbye page if it's in the user interface rather than the business logic then it's inflexible that's basically what you're saying okay that is correct um Second big problem, huge, huge, is state management. Yeah. So you know we've we've got all of us probably seven or eight years of web programming under our belts by now, and we're all really used to HTTP being stateless, and we've all developed our own little bag of tricks for dealing with that, right? Right. So let's go back to the credit card example. I start at the credit card fill-in page, and I go to the takeoff loser, but they don't want to say to me takeoff loser, yeah. right? They want to say, take off Mike, comma, you loser. <laughs> and the Make Mike it personal. Part, huh? That's right. 
Yeah, you're making it personal. That's personalization. A personal insult is always better than an anonymous insult. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, That that part, that mic, that state, right? Um, How did I get that state from the credit card page where I put it in to the takeoffloser.aspx page? Yeah. Um, I could have done it in the query string, form field, session, application, you name it, right? Okay. Um, all of those things create the same sort of fragility and brittleness in your application that navigation does, that workflow does. Because if I put it in the form field, now what have I done? I've got a dependency. The original page has yes. to know the name of that variable to put it there. Right. You've got to retrieve it. And... When it goes through the, you know, the the uh, query string or the form field or whatever, it's loosely typed. Very cool. So I've got a lot of problems there too. They're very icky. Um, also, so here's the third point. You know, we've talked about the first two goals of the UIP: number one, workflow; number two, state management; number three, we want to make it so it's real easy to switch between Windows, web, compact framework, and even smart device like cell phone. Uh, you know, WML type programming. I like the sound of that. Yeah, this is piquing my interest. Right now, there's not... The object models are close enough in WinForms and WebForms that the programming environment certainly feels familiar when you switch back and forth, right? Deceptively so, yeah. Yes. But the things you use to glue an application together are very, very different. There's no session. There's no cache in, in WinForms, right? Right. So if you write code to those things directly without an abstraction layer, you have bound yourself very tightly to, you know, one or the other. And you're talking about code that would normally be in the user interface um, and in in code where where there is some serious uh, UI code going on, but it's not business logic and it doesn't belong in the business layer, but yet... And it's going to have to be rewritten for every front end that we write. That's yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, state management and workflow. You right. know, if... The code that deals with the results of the data set when it comes back from database and shows it to the user and decides what we're going to do with it, et cetera. That's right. That's right. You know, navigation decisions, um, things having to do with the business, all that stuff, that's in the business layer. Right. Um, the UI has plenty to do, to do by itself. What it needs to be doing is painting painting pretty pictures on the screen. Right. That's its job. Input Uh, and output. Yeah, input and output. Um, And, you know, input is a a kind of a fuzzy area. Um, Okay, validation. There's some kinds of validation. There's semantic validation, right, where I say, does this look like a zip code? Does this look like a social security number, phone number, whatever, right? And you can do that. Shoot, you could do that script right on the front end, or you could do you know server side. Right. But that's okay. I'm not saying you need to abstract that. But what about if you have to do a heuristic validation, like, okay, this employee just put a social security number in. Is it a social security number that exists in our employee database? Yeah. That's a heuristic, and that should not be in the UI. Right. Well, what about the call to the function in the business object? That that's obviously got to go in the UI. What we're encouraging with the UIP, and if you if you look at it, and I probably shouldn't drill down into the the details of the object model, but basically we um, ask you to use a facade pattern. Okay. You have an object in there called a controller, and you derive from our um, abstract base.
base class, and we give you a bunch of utilities and nice stuff. It just kind of hides some of the, the plumbing that's happening. And you basically write a real thin layer between your UI and your business objects in that controller. And that controller also then takes over workflow and, and, and navigation. Cool. So that that's a pretty thin shim. It's pretty easy to write. And you're saying with that controller, it makes it easier to move from different user interfaces. Well, that's right. Um, you know, one of our demonstration applications is a shopping cart, and we use the exact same code, about 95% of the same code, for the Windows and the web version. All we change is what the presentation layer looks like, and all it does is put pretty stuff on the page. Hmm. Well, that's very exciting. I want very. to uh, to download that and take a look at it as soon as possible now. When do you think that'll be available? <clears throat> <laughs> this is one of those questions you can't answer without shooting me, right? Well, we have to. Have to, as in, you know, I really like my job and would like to keep it. Therefore, I will ship this before the end of the fiscal year, which is June 30th. Okay. Um, UIP right now is in its second test bounce. It's looking very good. Um the code is, is is pretty clean, and I think we've caught all the major <gasps> ooh right. that's evil type bugs. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm thinking end of May, uh, mid June. I taught my first sockets class today in VB.net, Advanced Sockets, and uh, the students in the class just loved it. We ended the day by writing a multi-threaded socket server that gets a request from a client uh, to send a data set, compresses it down to about 75%, well, compresses it by 75%, so down to about 25%, and then it sends it over the socket where it's... It's uh, accessed by a multi-threaded client, Sockets client, and decompressed uh, into a data set and shown in a grid. So I have a data set transport in Sockets that's not much more difficult to use than asynchronous web services. It's very cool. Anyway, check out our classes online at www.franklins.net. Hey, let's get back to this incredible talk with Michael Stewart from Microsoft Consulting Services. Don't go away. What is the idea of a task in this UIP? Oh, yeah, that's the third thing I didn't talk about. Um, one, one of the, the things that's a, a very happy side effect of the fact that we do state management for you is that we've abstracted it to such a degree that you can dehydrate an ongoing user interaction and rehydrate it at a later date or on a different machine or even in a different user. Sort of like a serialization? That's very occurring. much, oh, well, yes, and that's one of the implementations we use under the cover, sure. Um, but you know, the the key use case scenario, therefore, for me, there's another one too. But for me, was the oh crap, my boss is coming use case, right? And that one was Save I'm everything. shopping for yeah. you know a pretty bra for my girlfriend, Victoria's Secret <laughs> during work. Boss comes, you shut down the browser. You forgot where you are. We're encouraging good work habits here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it would be real nice to be able to go home and resume that session. Right. Um, and the, the more practically used for it is 
uh, one of our customers is running a call center for credit cards, and they may get seven pages into a 27-page interaction with a customer and be unable to continue because they're not a high enough employee and they need to hand it up to their manager. Sure. So being able to you know just That's package nice. up that whole scene is. And of course, that takes security into account. Of course, or does it? <clears throat> we we punt on that. Um, okay. We got to roll your own then. Yeah, we floated a layer below that. If your application has existing security, um, then we'll work with that just fine. You know, obviously, Great. a low-level user shouldn't be able to deserialize a high-level object. Right. And if you have good good security in your code already, you'll work just fine. You think you'll have a a security blue brick, or one or two or three? People are talking about it. Um, I, I'm not sure. I can't make absolute promises. Sure, sure. Um, one of the ones that we're floating around right now is an encryption block because encryption is so unbelievably complicated. Yeah, um, and it's true. very hard to get it done right. So that, it's a real possibility. Okay. Yeah, the encryption one would be nice. Uh, we've uh, played around with that some, Carl and I. What uh, these are? These are free, are they? They are free. You go download them, and we spend months and months and months writing these things, and we base them all on, on customer feedback. Um, I have literally uh, over 200 customer contacts for these three, and so they're very, you know, very customer-oriented. But you go to the MSDN, you download them. They're free. They come with tons of documentation. I'm working with uh, the technical writers in England right now. There's one per brick. And they've been working for a month already, and they'll be working another month and a half. Wow. So these things are, you know, they're serious. Um, well, you know, um, I, I can see a, a class building around this, Mark, can't you? Absolutely. I can I can definitely see a five-day class or, or maybe even smaller one-day classes on these things, hands-on. Yeah, uh, Michael, if you don't mind, you know, kind of digging into uh, the workflow one that you've talked about, uh, I'm kind of curious... I, when you mentioned dehydration and rehydration, uh, the first place I, I think I ever heard that applied to technology was um, with BizTalk, uh, because BizTalk is able to do this with long-running transactions. It dehydrates uh, state into a SQL Server database, and then right. you can pick it back up later uh, on the other end when you, you're ready to complete the transaction. So as far as managing uh, you know, the locking of resources or anything like that, uh, do you have that that sort of thing addressed in, in the brick? That it's a great question. We were very very careful with how big our scope was on that because there's a whole spectrum of design patterns around UI. Everything from there's a very simple one called Observer that does some really cool stuff, but you know it's it's pretty small. Um, then MVC, which is probably the most widely used model view controller. But model view controller doesn't have any pretensions towards state management. It just provides that abstraction that keeps views, you know, the, the UI elements from knowing about each other. What is what? Where does that come from, MVC? I think it comes from Smalltalk. Huh. Um, I, I can't vouch for that for sure. Mark, uh, have you, do you remember reading about that in the Gang of Four book? Uh, MVC doesn't ring a bell, but the facade pattern and the observer pattern are both in the Gang of Four book. Hmm. I can't remember if MVC is in Gang of Four now. I've, I've, 
I've read a few patterns books and I'm getting them mixed up. But either way, it's real well, anyway, popular. So it's a way to to abstract uh, the UI elements from knowing about each other. Is that what it's for? That that's its primary task. Yeah, um, and to make it so that you don't have business logic in the UI. Okay. And oh, one of the other things is, uh, and and we. Let me let me talk about some of the more com- complex ones because you brought up BizTalk Server as well. There's another pattern called Front Controller that gets a little bit more in depth than MVC. And then at the very far end of the spectrum, as you mentioned, there's BizTalk. And BizTalk truly does long-running transactions, and it's all about statefulness. Um, we didn't want to get into that arena because there's this group in Redmond that's already done it pretty well, and that's the BizTalk guys. Yeah, if you want a B2B solution, uh, you know, they want you to think BizTalk. For sure. And it does some things that are just unbelievably hard to do. I mean, Absolutely. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even pretend to venture into that zone. Um, we're, our, our serialization of the, of the state is a very ephemeral thing. You know, when you're, well, let's go back to the crap my boss is coming, got to close the browser use case. Um, you know, that, that state may stay in a SQL server for a few days, um, in the case of a call center application, a few hours, whatever. Um, and we're not doing anything like compensating resource managers. There's no way of undoing, um, sort of having a, a rewind stack. We considered that initially, but the complexities of it are, are just too much. But let me ask you also, Michael, how are you syncing that state back up with that user? Are you doing it based on their login information when they come back in? That's a great question. Um, the Most of the demonstration applications do exactly that. They correlate user logon. But what we use internally is a GUID called a task ID. And it's up to you, the application developer, to bring us the GUID when you come to our system. Right. Well, say I was imagining if somebody's on their work machine and they begin this uh, this flow, and they have to log off and they go home, how how would we sync them back up if we didn't use login in that case because they're on a different machine? You could do it with a passport or you could just have forms authentication. Right. Yeah, forms is what I was kind of thinking. Sure. Sure, yeah, there's a, there's a, a million and one good ways of doing it. Yeah, the, the use of the GUID is something that, uh, that you saw back in classic ASP as well. Right. Uh, generating a GUID, popping it in a hidden field in the browser, and then using that as a primary key lookup into a database. Right, right. And yeah, that works well. It's a great trick, um, and we're certainly not afraid to recycle it. Cool. Um, what, are the, what are some of the other bricks that you're working on? You mentioned three of them. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we look at these bricks, you know, we look at how many people we think are going to use them, and then we look at how much they're going to do for the people who do use them. Um, and traditionally, they fall on sort of a kind of a a curve that that adheres pretty closely to the axes, where one that is extremely useful tends to be fairly complex, and relatively few people will use it. Yeah. Um, and when I say relatively few, I mean compared to data access brick, which pretty much everyone should use if they're right. not. Um, we think we'll get about 10 to 20% of that penetration with UIP. Um, but the others I'm working on, uh, one in particular, is a no-brainer. It's just like the data access block. Everybody needs it, and I think it's just going to sell like, well, well, 
I think it's going to download like wildfire because <laughs> it's free. Yeah, the price is right. It's the free. price That's is right. right, yeah. That's right. Uh, it's called the Configuration Manager. Okay. And it's a it's a doozy. I mean, if you've written a production application, you've needed this thing because what are your solutions right now for storing configuration information in .NET? Oh, web config file was one thing. Web config, right. Registry. Right. Registry, yeah, even registry, though. Registry, XML file. Kill sure. myself before I save anything in the registry. SQL. SQL. Um, and you could even venture out into AD if you, you know, have a, a kind and forgiving domain admin. Yep. <laughs> right. Um, or just write to a file. Well, yeah, right. Nothing wrong with that, as I've said before on the show. So all of these things are very easy to do, right? But they're very very time-consuming to do if you want to write a truly good abstraction that protects you from knowing at all where that information is kept, and it just works. Hmm. You just go, hey, configuration, square bracket, my key, give me my string back. Yeah. I don't care where it came from. I just want it. And then you get some more complexities. What if you're in a web cluster, you know, load balance cluster? Mm -hmm. uh, how about if you want encryption? Another big thing. So, you know, people right. keep database passwords and clear text in their web.config. And, yeah, you know, the ASP.NET engine protects web.config. It won't let you download it. But it still I doesn't crack... give me warm fuzzies, though. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if I crack a box, the first thing I've got is read access to the, to the, the root directories, right? Yep. Right. Um, and that's, that's a little bit scary. So we said, hey, we need a good configuration object. So we wrote one that, that gives you a whole bunch of flex points, but we ship it with uh, SQL, XML, and registry storage providers. They are read and write, which is very exciting because you can't normally write config, right? Sure. For, like, personalization. Well, yeah, you can, can't you? Nope. You can't write to a config file? Nope. Oh, you mean from an ASP.NET program? Right. Oh, okay. So you yeah, can't I knew about create that. a dynamic, well, I mean, dynamic properties. They're able to store to them. You could write it to a separate file, not your web.config. Certainly. Well, wait, 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 wait. There's an app settings section in the uh, in the web.config. Can I not create my own entries and stick them in there? You can't do it in the app in the app settings area, but I right. believe you can outside of that, can't you? N Michael? Not really, no. No. I mean, you can go in there and manipulate it with XML raw. Right. Just open the file. Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying because uh, something in app settings is easy to read, but it's tough to write something in there programmatically. You'd have to do it outside of you and know it, the normal. That's uh, right. And it's really because of the web, though, right? Because you have multiple things writing. You know, your session from a, from a session. That's not the good place to write to a config file. And, and you're right. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't um, encourage that particular use of it. But right. we give you the option of read write. But the other thing we did was we spent a ton of time uh, talking to the security guys in, in the PAG group and elsewhere um, about good ways of, of hiding configuration information and encrypting it properly. Okay. So we also give you pluggable encryption providers. We're going to ship with two of them. Um, if you guys have heard of DPAPI, the Data Protection API. Now, what's I that? Heard that? Never heard of that. Oh, yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, it's a, I think it's Windows 2000 and up only. Um, it data protection API basically. What's the big problem with encryption? Where where do you put it? I mean, so 
where do you put the darn key? Right. Yeah. Right? Where do you, you know, here you've key? got the secret that that only God and a few quantum engineers in the future can figure out. <laughs> right. Right? Right. I mean, modern encryption is so great, but you, you, you're so vulnerable because you've got to keep the key somewhere. Right. Um, so Deep Happy takes care of that for you. It, That's what we were talking to Dino about last week. Remember that, Mark? Yeah, I don't remember him calling it Deep Happy. He didn't but, know. No, he didn't know. But but uh, it was the same problem. It was the same thing. Right. I had known that there's a key. This is the key store, a secure key store that only the operating system knows where it is, right? Everyone knows where it is, but nobody can get to it because the OS protects it okay. based on your user password. Same thing. And yeah. only your profile can decrypt it. Right. If your profile isn't loaded, if you're not the guy logged on, forget about it. Uh, do you yeah. have a link or something where our listeners can get more about this? Uh, why don't I forward one to you guys? I've got a good one. Great. We'll yeah, that will be excellent. We'll put that up on the site. Absolutely. Now, unfortunately, right now, there's not a managed wrapper for Deep Happy. So we wrote one. All right. And it whoops butt. Um, it's very, very clean, very pretty code. I'm just, I'm, I'm so pleased with, with the... Um, I didn't actually write that one. I, I've concentrated mostly on the UIP and the and the app updater, which we'll talk about later. Do you see these things becoming part of the of the base class library someday? There's been some talk about that. Um, the ADO.net guys have talked to the Data Access Block guys. Um, I can't make any specific promises around that. But just as a guess, I mean, would you that that would be a logical course of action, don't you think? Gosh, if I were a program manager in that group, I'd sure be tempted to do something like that with with some of these things. Some of them. Yeah, some of them you have to remain as code, but source code. Right. Because that's where they exist, but yeah. Uh, Like that configuration wrapper, the Deep Happy wrapper would be a great one. You know, the tough thing is how do you do things like that without either confusing the existing namespaces or diluting the message of, of the OO-ness of .NET, you know. It's, Just add some more stuff. Add yeah, it's going to be another version of the framework. Another DLL. That's all. Or just, you know. You don't overwrite anything. System.data.buddyzywrappers. <laughs> System.security.deephappy. Yeah, yeah <laughs> sure. Know, oh, well, yeah, sure, or whatever. happy. Yeah. Yeah, and are, I don't know if y'all are, have heard this, but um, in... I want to say Longhorn, but possibly the next version of Windows after that, absolutely every single API is going to have a managed wrapper. Sweet. And it is gorgeous. That's Cairo. That's what that is. Cairo Cairo is a, um, for the old folks out there, that was the mythical object-oriented operating system Microsoft talked about in the days of VB4 and C++. Where everything was an object. Everything. The whole operating system was object-oriented. And the framework is about as close as we get to it now. But that's great. That means everything's available. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and the, the, the guys who are working on the UI part of that are very, very exciting. Um, you know, one of the things I love so much about IE is how accessible it is. I mean... I yeah. think except except for the kernel stuff, I mean the 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 uh, OS the GUI. I think you could write an entire GUI in IE because <laughs> it's just so incredibly versatile. Um, that that document object model is 
one of the things that's behind the thinking in the in the next version of the of the UI. Wow, cool. Have you ever seen an HTX file? Not an HTM, but HTX. Right, those are pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, they're they're application front ends that are developed in IE. Right. Huh. Right. Very powerful. Wow. Um, yeah, that, there's some exciting stuff going on with that. So, do you guys want to go back to the configuration manager? Well, I'd like to move on to the uh, app updater, if you if you don't mind. I think we Ooh. got the idea of the config yeah. manager. That's that's very very handy. Okay. Okay. Um, app updater. Did you guys play with? I know you're the featured site on uh, got.net, and uh, and kudos on that, by the way, because I mean, you know, those guys. Uh, there's some very very good .net sites and. Oh yeah, it's it's been great. So, um, but did you guys play with Terrarium? Oh yeah, the uh, where you build your animal. Right. Oh, that was awesome, man. Yeah, Mark well, that did. just not I cool. Didn't. Yeah. Um, do y'all remember the updater component that it used? Yeah. Okay, so that was the original app updater, and we said, "Gosh, you know that is so cool." That's bits, right? Uh no, it's not. Really? Ours is. Okay. That's one of the key differences. Um, we talked about bits um, I mean, maybe a month or so ago in one of the ad spots when we were talking about articles on MSDN Magazine, oh. which is a freaking great magazine, by the way. Yeah. A mm-hmm. freaking great magazine. And they <laughs> had an article on bits and how to use it with uh, C Sharp. So anyway. Boom. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So you remember the app updated from Terrarium. Um and it was kind of a one-time thing. Uh, a, a program manager out of Redmond, I, I think he either completely wrote it or wrote most of it, uh, Jamie Cool, and it was very good. So we said, man, we have got to turn this into a, an, an enterprise code sample for, for uh, the, the PAG group, Patterns and Practices. Um, plus, Everett has come out, so we've got to update it so that it works with Everett. Um, I think the original actually does, but we wanted to – anyway – we went crazy. And also, there was all that bit stuff coming out at the same time. So we said, all right, what about if we took the app updater and made it so the downloader was an interface, iDownloader, and you could plug in any kind of downloader you wanted. And we'll give you the one that we think is really the best right now, which is bits. I mean, it's a dead reliable. That's a, what is it, binary internet transfer um, system uh, or something like that? Background, background Intelligent Transfer Service. That's it, background, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, just it's whoops, whoops booty, it's very reliable, it works over HTTP. And the idea is that if you lose your connection during the download and you come the next time you come online, it resumes. No big deal, right. And it all happens in the background in a low-priority thread. That's right. Doesn't, doesn't interfere. Doesn't chew up your bandwidth. Yeah. Very friendly, doesn't spike, yeah. Um, so we took... And the other, the other idea was this. We felt that there was a kind of a gap. Um, you know, for deployment, you've got a lot of great options. You, you know, if you're in an enterprise, you're going to be using either SMS or Active Directory to push stuff onto your clients. Um, if you are a big-time web shop with tons of clusters, you're going to be using Application Center to distribute your web applications to those front ends. Right. But those are all push solutions. There's not a whole lot of good pull solutions out there, yeah. And certainly not ones that are you know written in .NET for .NET. Uh, so we really wanted to have that. That's very cool. I just did an experiment that worked out well to um, do sort of the uh, a chat program. I'm trying to do a 
firewall-friendly chat program. So I'm thinking, use a web service. But web services, as you know, are, are sort of a pull model thing, and a chat program sort of has to push. Everybody, you know, anytime a message comes out, it has to be broadcast to everybody. But I managed to do it with a web service. Check this out. Cool. <clears throat> I call a get message um, web service function on a, on a, asynchronously, and uh, by default, the timeout okay. value for that is infinite. Uh, no, that's not true. You have to set it to infinite. You set the timeout to an infinite value. In other words, you call it in the background. It goes on a background thread and calls the web service. And it'll sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait until it gets a message. On the web server, in the service, I call a function on a background thread that looks at this object that has messages and memory that come in. And it gets the last ID of the message, message ID, the last message that was in the, in the collection. And as soon as it gets another one, it returns it to that call. Follow me? Yeah. So it's so it's basically everything's happening in the background on the on the web service. The web service is sort of blocking in the background, waiting, you know, in a in a sleeping thread, waiting for a new message to come. So he's holding open the connection, but that's all right. It's happening in the background. And as soon as somebody else sends a message to that to this shared messaging manager component that I wrote, um, boom, he gets it. Did you consider using remoting with an HTTP protocol? Yes, yes, I did that next. So I did it as a web for service first, and then I did it using remoting, and that works even better. Yeah, remoting is kind of a dark subject for me, um, but it does offer some things that are so much cooler than DCOM. Are you going to the launch? The launch of Windows Server 2003 and Visual Studio 2003? Well, if you're not, and you're still interested in getting some info on that server product and what's new, check out MSDN Magazine. Of course, where else are you going to go? MSDN Mag Online, as well, has an article, a sneak peek, and an article about the new things in Server 2003. Did you know that the server is completely locked down by default? Um, unlike NT in 2000, out of the box, everything is locked down. So you have to enable the services that you want to use before you can use them. It may take some getting used to as a developer, but it's in everybody's best interest. Also, the Internet Information Server is moved a lot closer to the kernel, so not only is it more efficient, but it's more secure. You get that operating system level protection that you just don't get in Windows 2000. So it's fast, it's performant, the framework is built right in, and it's secure. Check it out. All right, now let's get back to Michael Stewart talking about these uh, application blocks, the blue bricks, here on .NET Rocks. And hey, we'll see you next week. I tell you, I've got a very simple remoting demo. It's called a remoting toolkit uh, up on my website, www.franklins.net slash .net. It's a remoting toolkit. It consists of a readme file, a web config file, and a VB module for your client. And it's based on the idea that you want to use HTTP channel with a binary formatter. And as long as you make your business objects that uh, are derived from Marshall by ref object, which, by the way, if you build them with components, 
they're going to be marshaled by ref objects. Right. Using a component class, right? Use a component class, exactly. And that's what you should be using for business objects anyway. So you do that, and you don't have to change line one of your code. And you go into the web config on the cert. You just make a dummy web application that has a reference to your business object. And you put like three or four lines in your config file, which I've got in my remoting kit. tells you what to change. You change the class name and the assembly name. And then you go into the client. You load in this remoting module. And there's a line of code that registers the client version, uh, the client thing. And you just change it and copy it and paste it for every object you want to remote. Add a reference to remoting. Add a reference to your business object. Boom. You're done. It's very cool. That is cool. Yep. So I have that sort of as a kit. Uh, I'm I'm actually going to download that because uh, I uh, just venturing off into the whole remoting world. I've been so infatuated with the, you know, with with the threading and all that fun stuff lately. Yeah. So. The thing about remoting is that when you when you tend to read things on it, you get such a wide focus, you know, of everything that it can do, it's very difficult to discern, okay, what part of it do I need? And then where do I go to find the snippet of code that I have to use? And I find that's the most challenging thing. It took me a long time to figure that little. We're also big fans of uh, Inga Rammer's book, yeah. uh, Remoting from yep. the Press. Uh, short book, really about the first four chapters. We'll get that's you up it. and going. Yep, and then he's got ways to extend it. In the last, in the rest of the book, what's know. that author's name? Ingo Rammer, R A M M E R. Uh, the publisher is A Press. A Press dot com. They've yep. been putting out some great stuff, and I'll tell you what: after the demise of Rocks, they're about the only game in town. Well, it's Dan Appleman, you know, it's right. his company, and Gary right. Cornell, their company. So they 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 really know what technical authors want, and they know how to treat their writers right. You know, that's right. one they thing they do. do. They they have much better royalties. They have royalties on on foreign uh, translations, which most publishers will give you diddly squat on that. They even have royalties for tech editors. I've uh, worked yeah. for them in the past as a a technical reviewer for books. Uh, very good company to work with. So they end up doing. They have a book on Lego Mindstorm programming. Did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. <laughs> that's kind of cool. That's very cool. You don't yeah. see that at Rocks Press. Anyway. We don't see anything at Rocks Press anymore. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's really too bad, though. I mean, it is. I remember, you know, back in the late '90s, I, I I swore by them. I have, you know, probably twenty of their books. It, it's too. I really feel bad for the authors that really busted their guts to put out books, and now they're all screwed up. Yeah, yeah. I really right. feel bad for them. Yeah, if you were an author that had just finished a book for them, uh, you're in a world of hurt, I guess. Yeah. Boy, no kidding. What do you do? Go shop it around? Uh, yeah, I guess. Jeez, that's harsh. You know, one of my buddies, um, I, he, you guys may actually know him, Stephen Fulcher? Oh, uh, yeah. Familiar name. I've heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. He's, is is uh, he a regional director? He's not an RD, is he? Yeah, he's an RD right now. That's where I know him. That's right. He just came, uh, just started that. Yeah. Uh, I think he took over from Jay Skelly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, down here in, in Texas. So anyway, he's uh, he's writing a book, and I'm pretty sure he's using A Press. Hmm. I have to ask him about that. Cool. 
So let me ask you a question about the um, uh, the tattoo on your arm. Is that real? What is the deal with that? Yeah. Oh, so here's the deal, right? Um, I'm a I'm a, you know pretty clean cut conservative guy, but I uh, every year we have this big Microsoft get together for all the field folks, and about ten thousand of us descend on some city, and you know all the Europeans, all the the South American subsidiaries, the, the Asian subsidiaries, everybody gathers in this one place, and we have you know five days of, of hardcore technical stuff and uh, basically a big old company meeting. <laughs> they pass the Kool Aid out. Oh, they pass out <laughs> buckets. Yep, yep. You know, and Steve Ballmer, who's the most dynamic person I have ever seen. Yeah. You know, he's unbelievable. He's yeah. very. You see him talking to Neil Cavuto, and he's completely normal, and I just crack up because I know what he's like yeah. when he's in front of us. Yeah. Uh, anyway, people get a little bit crazy. Nothing too bad. And uh, we were in Miami back in 2000, and, you know, South Beach. Right. Good food. Yep. Pretty soon we're thinking tattoo, and that's when I got the Windows XP logo on my right shoulder. One too many Coronas, my friend. But, you know, that's the worst thing. I don't even drink. I was dead sober. <laughs> that's how strong the Kool-Aid is. Oh, man. So tell us what it is. It's a Windows XP logo. <laughs> On your right arm? Yep, about an inch and a half. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's about... I, you know, I like that it's countercultural, but at the same time conformist. <laughs> Oh man, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, encourage our listeners to get .NET Rocks tattoos. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, man, that's a great idea. <laughs> I listen sweet. to the two fat guys that talk about code. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Just be sure and get it on a part of your body that doesn't stretch. You know? <laughs> that's right, or maybe it should. I don't know. Yeah. Um, let me ask you um, if we can backtrack to the current stuff that's out there now in the blue bricks sure um i and i do want to come back to the database one but there's another um application block for exception handling right and uh, exception handling is something that i notice when i'm teaching that a lot of people don't really have a clear idea of what they should do with it um you know and, and it, it becomes a little more apparent once you start studying the way net internally handles exceptions when you see an exception stack for example and you can drill down through the inner exceptions and the inner exceptions and the inner exceptions till you finally come to you know the ultimate problem um then from that you can sort of figure out that every layer has to catch an error and throw its own error exception passing the an inner exception so what are you guys it's got something to add to the conversation yeah 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 you know, if it doesn't, it should just, just pass it right on up. Right. Yeah, just throw it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So what 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 is the main uh, impetus behind creating that exception block? Well, the exception block uh, came after the data block, and um, it's slightly more complex. Um, it's, you know, we, we try very hard to take into account, we've got three basic levels of usage, uh, you know, the good out-of-box experience where you just, Include it in your project and it just works. And then, you know, your slightly more custom one, and then the one I like to call Kung Fu Developer, where they're going to be <laughs> developing plugins for it and just 
you know, getting peeved because you didn't do the source right and right. hacking it up. Um, and that's great. Yeah. Uh, encourage people to do that. The exception manager basically is a little bit in philosophy like the configuration manager. Um, there's a lot of good ways of doing exception publishing. Like you can put it in the event log, you could put it in a file, you could put it on MSMQ, you could echo it up through Windows Messenger to, you know, try to, or uh, WMI to try to roll it up through the enterprise. So, you know, for instance, if I were administering 16 web front end boxes, you know, I were like Dell.com or something, I'm just giving an example, I'm not pointing out specifics. Sure. Um, then it'd be real nice for me to know what kind of application exceptions are happening on all 16 of those boxes. And getting a redirection layer that works well to do that is not trivial, but not super hard either. But it's just a lot of code to write, and that's what they what they did in the exception manager. They give you a pluggable way of publishing exceptions. And I heard that um, you can send an email, for example. Right. Right. Log it to a. Can log you log to, log to a trace listener or do something else like that? Sure. Right. Paul Sheriff was talking about that, I think. Yeah. That's cool. Now the the data. Let me get back to the data block because I saw this demoed. Um, and one thing I didn't understand how and why you did things this way, or they did things this way. And maybe you can answer this. Maybe you can't. But what the what the thing does is it wraps up calls to store procedures, right? Or plain text SQL. Okay. Or plain text SQL, but it. But it keeps something in a cache so that a round trip doesn't have to. We don't have to configure the parameters for the store procedure. Right. What's that all about? That is very very nice. Okay, so first of all, if you're familiar with the FM Stocks data access layer, where it's real thin. If you remember the original one, it was like run SP return integer, run SP return string. Um, yeah. You know, thin stateless. Right. Matter of fact, pragmatic um, front end on the on the data access layer, which I love. Um, data access block is similar to that in philosophy, but the parameter caching is real cool. Uh, What's the problem, the, first of all? What, where where do you run into the problem? Well, the issue is this: um, unless you strongly type your stored procedure parameters right up front, um, do you do you remember back in ADO days you could do? Uh, uh, parameters dot refresh, and what that would do is execute a query against SQL Server. Hey, give me the metadata for these parameters so I know what type they are. Right, made another trip to the database to do that. That's right. Yes. Then you execute execute your query. There's trip number two. Okay. Right? So if you did that all the time, you just doubled the number of round trips. And this is if you haven't strongly typed your parameters list. So the idea is, we don't want to strongly type the parameters list to make the code flexible, right? Flexible and, let's be honest, easier to write. Easier to write because we don't ever have to worry about parameters. But we, so we want to load them dynamically, but we don't want to make that round trip. That's right. Okay. So what this lets you do is all of the the methods, you know, um, execute reader, execute data set, whatever, allow you to pass in an object array of parameters, totally untyped. Just boom, do it. Take These care of the values. Me. That's right. Yeah. And it goes and figures them out. And then caches those uh, that that metadata for the store the parameters, and then hmm. the next time. So you only pay that cost once. Does it refresh? And then for the rest of that application's life, it's just using those cache data, the the cache parameters. Cache parameter information. Right. Now that's a good idea. That's a great idea. Flick. Yeah. 
I didn't get that from the guy I saw presenting it. I didn't understand why. Well, you know, because all in, in all my code, my my parameters were strongly typed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm using wizards to create data adapters, or maybe I'm creating from a from a stored procedure, mm-hmm. and that's basically doing all that parameter work for me. But they're hard coded, so uh, there wasn't really, you know, that wasn't explained that why you would why you wouldn't want to strongly type your parameters because I guess that's what it all comes down to, is that you have less code to manage. You have less code to write if you're writing it yourself, and you have less code to manage if you're letting the wizard writing it. Write That's it right. You. And of course, it's it's flexible. If your database changes, you only have to change the call to the to the store procedure and the parameter that you pass. You don't have to set up all the code again. That's right. And if your DBA or your is, is being friendly to you, he will just add the extra parameters at the end, so you don't have to change the existing. Right. Code. So co- yeah. or existing code won't break. Right. Very cool. That's yeah, great. That's, that's a good block. And by the way, um, they are working on version two right now. I uh, I just reviewed the uh, the spec document and begged and pleaded for a feature I really want. Is there anything you can tell us that's going to be new in version two? Well, one of the things that everybody wanted was uh, uh, strongly typed data sets. Okay. So I, I yeah. think that's going to make the cut. So it's going now, to manage what, what the, uh, the schema right. oh, for oh. the data set then. You mean if if the schema of the database changes, it will change the code without uh, having no. to regenerate things? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, we're not okay. going to do code gen. Um, they're talking about um, uh, the strongly typed data sets, you know, the ones where you set up an XSD for it. You basically mirror the, well, you don't have to mirror, but, but most people, when they do them, they basically mirror the structure of the database. Right. And you get a set of strongly typed objects. Sure. Right. Um, with the original, um, the original data access block, it was pretty much impossible to, to work with those with the block and oh, a little bit of extra glue. Okay. So, so the new block does the same thing the old one did. It just works with strongly typed data sets now. And there's a, there's a, few other things too and honestly I don't even remember now because it, it's been a couple of weeks since I reviewed the spec um, I don't even remember the thing I was begging for oh I remember what I was begging for pluggable providers um, right now there are hmm. two implementations there's the SQL one and I think there's a black market Oracle one <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted uh, I wanted complete abstraction of that so it would work with with any back end okay and, and that's if, that's for the for the application blocks because we know the data providers do a pretty good job of that. Right, but I wanted to be able to use the same um, data access application block Got and, it. and just change something in the config, and boom! Now all of a sudden it works with DB2. That's nice. Right, so they didn't they didn't handle the uh, OLEDB provider. There's a black market version of that one floating around <laughs> as well. Okay. Yeah. Right. Meaning that someday we'll see that. Yeah. Probably. Although I, I, it's a heck of a cost to us, um, so um, I'm not sure how soon that's going to come. I just figured something out I think you guys might be interested in, and that is if you're using data sets and you're remoting, when I go to save my changes, first of all, I want to call get changes on my data set and only send that across. Right. I want to be efficient. Now, what the heck do I return? This is the issue that I was up against. What do I return from that function that save, you know, save changes to my whatever table? Here, here's my data set. Now save my changes. Do an update, basically. 
what the heck do I return to my, you know, to my uh, presentation? Do I return the entire data set again? Because what I want to capture is the row errors on, on the rows that have errors. And I want to capture column errors on any columns that have specific errors. Is very useful information, not only for your user interface, if you're using a grid or something like that, but if you want to analyze that and deal with the issues and deal with the changes and deal with the errors that happen. Um, also, your business logic should be setting column errors when it has validation issues. Right. So how do you get those back in your original data set? And the thing that I came up with was uh, w was two things on either side. On the first, on the on the remoting side, what I do is after, uh, first of all, I set continue update on error to true, okay? Right. On the data adapter. Then I do an update. And then what I'm going to do then on the data set that I pass in is call get changes on that and return a copy of the changes, which are only, at that point, the, re the, the records and the tables that had errors. Because they oh, okay. haven't changed. Right. Because the data adapter is going to do an accept changes on everything that works. And everything else remains a change. So I'm going to get the changes and return that, you know, to, to my calling code across the network, web service, remoting, whatever. And then on my other, on my client side, what I have is some code that will take my original data set and take this new data set of er that has the errors in it and merge them. But it doesn't use the merge because that would be either adding new records or not adding new records. It doesn't really replace the old records. Right. So I have to go into those to to the to the data set that has the changes that was returned, look for all the errors, the row errors, the column errors, and then look them up in the original and set the errors. And that's what it does. And it works great. It works over remoting, it works over web services, and I can really keep the traffic down to the, the critical traffic. You gotta love ADO.net. I, you know, at first I was real. I mean, a couple of years ago, switching from ADO, I was like, oh man, this is all so new and yeah, different way of thinking. But you Absolutely. start playing with it like you've done, and gosh, dude, yeah, pretty slick stuff. Very slick. Well, yeah, what Carl's talking about is, uh, you know, a common problem. That's one of the toughest hurdles to get over with it uh, when you've got concurrency problems in a disconnected environment. Right. Oh. Or, or even concurrency problems or even, uh, you know, foreign key constraints or any other um, errors that you want to set yourself, such as validation errors. You know, we can't do this right now. Got to send it back. Right. By the way, one of the blocks that we're talking about doing is an offline processing block. Hmm. Um, it was actually one of the ones I was originally supposed to do. And I said, well, I can do three things at once, but not four. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> this is a scoop. <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, that is a real possibility for next year, next wow. fiscal year, which, you know, starts for us in uh, July. Um, what would the gist of that be? A, a, little, a little off what you were saying, but basically, what if I, I'm a mobile sales force and I have tablet PCs? Um, wouldn't it be nice if I had an application that really gave me no clue whether it was connected or not. Hmm. It just worked, and then it would spool up whatever it needed to and, and dump it whenever I was connected. Hmm. Um, you know, and obviously that 
it's impossible to do for for some things, but what we thought would be neat would be to do an application block that simulated it as much as possible and then when there had to be a back-end decision, for instance, validate this credit card, um, that it would say, okay, that you have to wait for, but you can continue with the rest of your stuff. Wow. It was kind of one of the... So you mean like without having to rewrite any code, you'd like derive a new data adapter or something? or Well, you could, you could probably... Uh, this is like a classic traveling salesman problem, right? Sure. You know, you're not uh, connected to the corporate database, but you want to take orders all day long, so you could... Uh, you know, actually persist a data set as an XML file, something like that, and then uh, have a layer that uh, that syncs it up whenever it detects it's online. Well, the that, was, the that, that, that was what we were talking about. Well, doesn't the SQL guy do that now? The the mobile SQL with synchronization. Oh, the MSDE. Yeah, that was one of the one for of the, the mobile toolkit things we were we were talking about using as a um, a local data store. Right, right. Um, this is very. I mean, the thinking behind this block is very much in its infancy. I mean, we we didn't even have a design; we just had ideas. Um, and I'll I'll see how okay. that shapes up. One that's very close to shipping alongside mine is the caching block for ASP.NET uh, for everything. Hmm. You know, one of the problems <laughs> with WinForms is you don't have that wonderful ASP.NET cache, right? Yep. Um, and another thing is. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to store the cache anywhere you want it? So some guys out of Microsoft Israel did a really, really cool implementation. One of the providers is a memory map file. Y'all remember those? Oh, you know what? Remind me to bring this up again. Memory map files. Go ahead. Oh, it is it is a slick implementation, and it is faster than snot. The first time I heard about memory map files was when Rocky Lotka brought it up. Uh-huh. And talking about remoting, he said that there's a there's a whole a whole um, uh, community of people who are working on extending remoting with different channels, and one of those channels is that people are working on is memory mapped files, basically a way that we can directly map data in memory from one application and access it in another application, right? Oh, that's kind of slick. Yeah, yeah. Why, um, As a remoting channel, that would be extremely fast. I've also heard that there's a rumor of a named pipe remoting channel. That's right. I've seen that as well. Yeah. Probably, maybe, maybe not as fast as memory map files. Memory map files probably the fast. I, I think I don't that's know. probably the fastest you could get. Yeah. I'm just thinking. Besides that, you being in the same process. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the caching block is coming out pretty soon. It'll probably ship alongside mine. Um, another guy. So what do we need a cache for if our module level variables or class level variables actually stick around? What if you want to share it among multiple? Just for the for the uh, recycling aspect of it. Well, what if you want to share it among multiple applications? Right. Okay. Well, I can see that. You've got that issue. You've also got the issue of you know. That's the issue. It's that's the issue. When you have multiple applications that want to use a cache, maybe in the same process but in different application domains, I'm thinking. What if you want to be able to tell your cache, hey, listen, I've got to shut down the application, but you go ahead and keep what you've got so okay. far. Okay. Now I'm getting it. It's got to be outside the process. Yeah. Well, it'd be a nice extension to COM Plus, uh, right. you know, in the future. Yeah. Uh, to be able to have some sort of application cache. You know, I guess you you might consider the shared property manager 
something like that now. Mm. But uh, no. But yeah, you know the the shared property manager is considered evil in many regards. But uh, it'd be nice to have a cache object similar to what <laughs> we have a nice reaction there, Mike. ASP.NET and Complex. I, I say no for SPM because it's great for um, smaller apps, but I wouldn't want to run my ticketing and reservation system with it. Um, not because not because they did a bad job, but simply that's not what it's designed for. Right. It's not no. not incredibly scalable. As um, you know, what I've I've heard, I really don't use it. But uh, you know, I read Patterson's book and you know his discussion about uh, what he what do he call it the spam, the spam. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any, um, Michael? Do you have any favorite tools that you've downloaded or bought, even bought? Maybe third party applications, third party tools that you like. Oh yes, I do. I have just recently fallen in love with a new tool called the C-Sharp Refactory. It's by a company called Extreme Simplicity. And the uh, the CTO, um, gosh, his name escapes me now, uh, Kotha or something. Anyway, I can't remember his name, but the company is Extreme Simplicity. Product C-Sharp Refactory. Okay. Very, very slick little piece. Um, it lets you do things like, uh, well, the simplest thing, you know, right-click on a method name and say change it, and it changes, changes it throughout your entire solution, Huh? you know, which is somewhat awkward to do with just plain old find and replace because right. you can make mistakes. True. Um, it'll do things like... Is it only for C-sharp? What's that? Is it only for C-sharp? I don't know that. I think it may be. Huh. Um, you can right-click an, an entire class and say extract the interface. You can You can click on a... You can click on a block of code and say extract a method, and it gets all the parameters and stuff right for you. Wow. So when you're factoring code, it's just a fantastic tool. And oh, that sounds great. Too. Sounds great. Well, you got any uh, last-minute wisdom to impart on us? Uh, or maybe, uh, I don't know, a joke? No. Um, <laughs> any, uh, impart on us uh, uh, poor starving souls? guys aren't as starving as I am. I'm getting up at four to code these days. <laughs> um, and I just, uh, you know, be looking for, be looking for these three new bricks. They're coming out in the next month, month and a half. And trust uh, the bricks. Trust the bricks. That's a good message. And uh, get out there and, and, you know, read some design pattern books and because that's the way all of Microsoft is going and I think you're going to see it reflected in the code more and more. You mentioned feedback. Is there an email address or someplace that people can send their suggestions for Bluebricks? Oh, yeah, there sure is. Um, and, you know, darned if I can't remember the alias right offhand. Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll set it up online. Uh, Michael, I got one last question for you. Um, where did the name Bluebricks come from? Oh, Legos. Um, I think the guys, you know, sort of were brainstorming one day the the program manager slash architect that I'm working for, um, Edward Jazirsky. He's uh he's sort of the sort of the point man for me certainly and, and one of the real idea guys in PAG. Um and I think it was his baby. He's Argentinian. So I don't think that the inevitable slang occurred to him at the time. <laughs> but he based it on Legos. He just said, Hey look you know, building applications with .NET should be like snapping together Legos. 
and we need to provide Legos for people. Nice. So that was the idea behind Blue Bricks. Wow, that's great. Very cool. Well, uh, Michael Stewart, thank you very much. It's been an incredible uh, just over an hour, about an hour and 20 minutes. And uh, thank you so much. Can we ask you to come back again in Absolutely. six thank months you guys or so? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah, come back in six months and tell us what the new Blue Bricks are going to be. Oh, you got it. You got it. All Maybe right. I'll get my dream and uh, get to work on a threading Blue Brick. Oh, I love it. I got to talk to you about a Sockets Blue Brick. I got some great code. Oh, that'd be great too. Sure. Yeah. We'll talk. All right, guys. <laughs> All right. Thanks for calling. Thank you guys very much. We'll talk Take to you care, later. Mike. All right. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.